The White House's new strategy for expanding the national cyber workforce relies a lot on action at the agency level. It argues the federal government should be a leader in adopting skills-based hiring practices rather than just relying on this or that college degree. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday brings us more. And tell us more of what's in this new strategy, Justin. Yeah, this National Cyber Workforce and Education Strategy, as it's called, was released earlier this week by the Office of the National Cyber Director. And it really lays out the Biden administration's approach to meeting both immediate cyber needs, cyber vacancies, and and longer-term cyber workforce trends. And really, the demand for cybersecurity skills for, for a lot of years now has outpaced the supply of qualified personnel, depending on what kind of uh, data you use, there is something in the range of 700,000 vacant cyber or IT related jobs nationwide. And, you know, the White House and the strategy is saying there's a lot of barriers to accessing both cyber education and training. And so I think the first thing to mention here is that this is not just something that federal agencies are going to have to do. This is going to rely on schools, colleges, universities, the private sector, all kind of coming together to follow the different pillars in the strategy. But for federal agencies here, I think there's a few things to mention. First, there's a lot of funding already behind this. Uh, Officials point to programs in the bipartisan infrastructure law the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act, different you know grants and, and other programs that uh, kind of fund cyber training and other things like that. And then for agencies in terms of their own hiring and training, Kemba Walden, the acting national cyber director, says agencies can really play a big role in expanding the number of, quote unquote, good paying middle class cyber jobs to a more diverse range of people. Here's Walden speaking at the Atlantic Council earlier this week. The federal government is seeking to remove barriers that prevents cyber talent from getting that critical first job. This will benefit both early cyber talent, new to the workforce, and seasoned job seekers, new to the cyber field. I challenge America's other sectors similarly to explore ways to reduce barriers to entry. Okay, and so therefore, what should individual federal agencies be doing right now under this new strategy? Yeah, right now, the Office of Personnel Management has actually already released guidance on what's called skills-based hiring instead of, you know, just relying on certain degrees and certifications and laying that out in a, you know, complicated job posting, you know, you use skills-based assessments to figure out whether someone is is qualified for a certain job. And, you know, Rob Shriver, deputy director at the Office of Personnel Management, says that could really help, you know, across our whole range of technology roles. We are exploring ways to realign many of the tech, cyber, AI, and data roles and job series to skills-based hiring, completely eliminating the need for previous work experience or a degree if you can demonstrate that you've got the skills to do the job. Not only does this expand the talent pool for agencies to pull from, but it also removes barriers that once held qualified people back from public service. And Justin, a lot of agencies have grant programs and other cooperative types of agreements with some of the less traditional types of institutions, the historically black colleges and universities, Spanish-speaking serving schools and universities, places like that, that have been untapped sources of talent. So when uh, Kemba Walden was talking about lowering barriers, I think that's also part of what she meant. Do you think so? I think so as well. I mean, there's been a number of colleges, universities, and private sector companies that have come out and made commitments to expand certain cyber training programs, to expand opportunities for you know both younger workers. Because traditionally, what you see in a cyber posting is is they want this sort of unicorn. It's a 
it's a it's someone with all these different degrees, uh, ten years of experience, but it's still an entry level job somehow. And that that that's where they're looking to really make a difference is no longer have that situation uh, happening, really at least across the federal government where they can control those job postings. And then there's the issue of security clearance, which is another question for another day. But they'd like ten years of experience, you know, and clearance. So therefore, training and professional development, is that the government's role? And how does that all happen under this strategy? Yeah, there's some significant efforts laid out for the federal government on, on training. Uh, you know, first, it, it pushes agencies to look at reskilling, upskilling, and professional development opportunities across the federal workforce. It points to some existing programs. Uh, one is the Federal Virtual Training Environment, managed by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. There's the Open Opportunities Platform run by OPM, and then the Cyber Vets Program, uh, actually run by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Those are all existing, you know, sort of professional development opportunities to get people into the cyber workforce. And at the same time, the White House and some other lead offices here are going to explore the creation, quote unquote, that's their term, for, of a federal cyber workforce development institute. This will be a central place that provides standardized role-specific skilling reskilling, upskilling, some sort of curriculum guidance and training for entry-level positions in cyber across the government. So that's something to watch out for going forward. Sounds like something the Harvard General Studies program could convert to, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Sorry, folks. And with respect to pay in government, Kemba Walden mentioned that, that you know these should be jobs that pay well. Government jobs at that level generally pay okay, but maybe not as much as Meta is paying or something. Yeah, I mean, that this is one area where the strategy is a little lighter on details. Of course, you know, one of the number one things that agencies confront when trying to recruit cyber uh, folks is that they can't offer as high pay as, as you mentioned, Google and Meta and, and even government contractors cannot offer higher pay than, than, of course, the federal government in most cases. So the strategy really stresses that agencies should take advantage of hiring and pay flexibilities, things like student loan repayment programs. Uh, you know, there's different pay authorities that they can use for certain roles and then relocation incentives, for instance, as well. And then there are systems in place at some spots in the federal government. There's the Defense Department's Cyber Accepted Service, the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Talent Management System. They can offer higher pay, well, much higher pay compared to the traditional general schedule system for cyber positions. But the strategy really doesn't have any specific you know, way to address this across the rest of government. That's something that former Federal Salary Council Chairman Ron Sanders uh, pointed out to me. He says it's one of his disappointments with this new strategy, which otherwise he called good. Your career progression opportunities are limited. Your pay is limited because you've got to rely on not only your agency's willingness to, and ability to pay, but others if you want to be part of the special rate world. So to me, that's the single biggest flaw in that fourth pillar of the uh, workforce strategy is that it still takes a very traditional agency-by-agency um, agency approach. Yeah, well, agencies operate within statutory and regulatory norms, and they can't stretch too far beyond them. Anything else we need to know about that strategy, Justin? Yeah, I think also on hiring, it calls for creating across-the-board training to create uh, really a cadre of human resources professionals who are at least better equipped to take advantage of the cyber talent, you know, pay and other management tools that exist today. I think that's something that's come up in a lot of reports on cyber workforce is that obviously the CIO wants to recruit someone, but it's really the HR team that drives that. And if they're not 
familiar with different special pay authorities and things like that, they might not know how to take advantage of them. So OPM and, and some other offices are going to create that training program for HR specialists. And then data is the last thing to mention. They want to, you know, make sure agencies are better using better data to inform cyber workforce management. So there's going to be some efforts to adhere to, you know, NIST's NICE framework, the workforce framework for cybersecurity, to really drill down into more modern, uh, better defined cyber workforce roles across government. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot 
And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, 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 it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back 
and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.